All right, let's go ahead and start. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We do ask that uh, you would open your word up to us, that we could learn from it, that you would, by your spirit, Lord, apply it to our lives, that, uh, that the world would see um, your goodness, uh, your son. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, so kind of all over the place, I think this is the last, uh, last shot at uh, summing up uh, justification. Um, we have a lot of things that we've discussed. We talked about the order of salutis and how it relates, uh, the order of salvation. Uh, we've talked about um, uh, social justice, which I want to get into a little more today, social justice. I got a quiz for you, so we got a lot uh, to talk about. I didn't even plug in my thing. Oh, boy. Post-Thanksgiving blues here. All right. The Ordo Salutis. Uh, can we talk about that for just a second? Let me pull it up. Okay, go. <laughs> I, you have to give me just a second. This thing's... Had trouble with internet today. Just three more minutes. I'm the one who said, let's get started, right? All right, here we are. I'm, I, am, I am here. All right. So on a timeline, we talked about this, but I want to reiterate this. We have, uh, who is involved in salvation? Of the Trinity, who is involved in salvation? All three, right? I said, when we say all three, explain that. Okay, so we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, correct? All right, but when we say all three, all sounds like there's this collective, right? So explain that real quick. Well, it, it sounds, but I, if you're not a believer, you're thinking, okay, there's this, there's this contradiction, right? Three gods, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, so it's three persons and one being, one essence, okay? That was a real big discussion back in the early church. Um, was God of the same essence as Jesus and so forth, right? And, and heresies come up. And by the way, one thing about about councils, uh, the Council of Chalcedon and Ephesus and so forth. Uh, very interesting point here. Um, a lot of the early church doctrines were not developed until somebody comes along and starts claiming something that's really weird, right? So if somebody, we have, we've never talked in here about, uh, uh, about a number of things. Um, I'm trying to think of one offhand. Modalism, that's, a, that's the current one, right. Modalism, the idea that, that God reveals himself at one particular time as the Father, but when the Son shows up, it's the same person only now in the mode of the Son, right? And, then, and so that's modalism. The church didn't address modalism until somebody came around and started saying that, right? That modalism was how it was. So a lot of these things didn't come around. The Trinity was not really a discussion that was had until somebody came around and challenged uh, that Christ was created, right? So Arius was one of the first, okay? He was probably the most prominent in early church history, 
Arius came along and said, no, 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 Jesus is created. He's created. Uh, he was the first of God's creation. I mean, doesn't it say the firstborn of God's creation? Uh, and so you start getting into, now we've got to define terms. Now we've got to, what do you mean by firstborn? What do you mean by creation? What do you mean, right? Jesus was made a little, uh, made in the likeness of man. Made. That's created, right? That's, no, that's not what that means. So we have to define our terms. So the first thing we have are, do you remember the decree of God? Why do we call it singular? Decree, not decrees. Bless you. Huh? It was one God, but there's only one plan. Right? God has made one decree. There are not these plan A, plan B, plan C things, right? That's a technical point because if you said decrees, nobody's going to argue that God doesn't have... We talk about decrees because he might have one decree for your life and one for mine, and so there we see them as separate decrees. Under God's economy, in God's economy, it's all a decree. It's all one reality in his mind, okay? So after the decree of God, which is the Father, right? God has decreed all things. What comes next? In terms of the order of salvation, we're going to see this is, again, all this works toward justification, which justification is going to be kind of the peak of, of all of this, right? It, justification is, without question, the zenith of the Christian life. Okay? Apart from justification, it's meaningless. And wrapped up into that is are things like the resurrection uh, and the work of Christ and His deity and so forth. But for us, what's the decree of God? What comes next? Anybody? Okay. I mean, obviously, when we get into the, 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 the part of it is the will of God, the decree of will of God, which occurred before the foundation of everything, and the solitariness of God. And then there's the revealed will of God, which is the expression of that decree of will through the followers of God. I, I, I think that's a great point. And I'll, let me camp there for just a second. Uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Right? The secret things belong to the Lord. And so many denominations, faiths, religions, whatever, try to dabble, put, touch their toe into those waters. And they try to say, okay, well, here's what God means in his secret will. Right? This is what he means. And they try to predict the future. And they try to do all these different things. Well, you're right. And there are two wills that we see in Scripture. One is his decretive will. Right, that which he has decided will be the case without telling us about it. We don't know, and we never will, right? But there is something else, and I'm going to kind of use this line both as a timeline, but also as God's up here and we're down here, okay? But he's, so he's also given us what's called the preceptive will. If you go back and you read... Uh, Psalm 119, it talks about the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is wonderful. It's you know, sweeter than honey. It's sweeter than the honeycomb. It's the, the word of the Lord. It, it converts the soul. It, it restores our, you know, it, it convicts, of, convicts us of sin. It does all of these things the word of God does. And so what God has given us in his precepts, which, again, Psalm 119 goes through the synonyms for, his law, his ordinances, his testimonies, right, those kinds of things. This, is, this says, do this and don't do this. It's a very simple thing. Anna and I were talking. It's a very interesting thing that 
in, in the freedom, think about this, the freedom that God's given us in the law. How many of the Ten Commandments are negative? Anybody know? No, not one. Negative meaning thou shalt not. Eight. Eight are negative. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. And people read that and they're like, man, what a restricting, unloving, horrible God. He just wants us to... No, there's freedom in the negative. Let me give you an example. Thou shalt not commit murder. Just don't do it. You're free to do anything else. Just do not commit murder. Now, let's make that a positive thing. Make sure your neighbor stays alive. Oh, my goodness. I, I got to... Oh, don't, don't, don't drink that. It could be... Had, oh, you know, don't... Make sure you're... When you put your seatbelt on, make sure you're... You know, we're running around. Don't, don't climb up past the third rung on the ladder on Thanksgiving. Because, you know, we're running around trying to keep everybody alive. That's burdensome. Thou shalt not kill. That's freedom. Right? Do not take the Lord your God's name in vain. That's freedom. I have the freedom of speech and expression. And, and, and if I'm doing that and not violating the Lord's name, that's freedom. But if God said, only say these words, that's a burden. So there's freedom in negative commands. Okay? Understand that. But his precept, when we read these things, right, thou shalt not, or thou shalt do these things, that's what God's told us. Anybody know the number of uh, laws coming out of the ten? 613 laws that, that, the, uh, that the Jews had to follow, right? And the Jews, of course, the Pharisees took this, and they're like, well, we don't know what work means. What does work mean? Well, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath, you nor your maid, nor your manservant, nor your slave. You. Nobody can work on the, on the Sabbath. What does work mean? The Jews, really, the Pharisees, really, really bothered them. And so for hundreds of years, they had in place this system where, well, work is walking X number of, uh, X number of steps. 500 steps is what they were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. I'm sorry, but if you don't plan your steps right, first of all, who's counting? Right? What if you just are one step away from the 40 yeah, so It's a mess. Say, what, what degree off can get you miles away? But if you should think about on this one, to, to, un, to misunderstand the purpose of the law and as the means by which we are declared guilty as a means by which we can declare ourselves righteous. Right. Not doesn't send you off just miles apart. I mean, you are 180 degrees opposite of God's intention right. for those walls. Yes. And the law was designed to do what? Point us, point us to Christ. It was our tutor to show us Christ, right? Paul tells us that in Galatians. So if the law's design was to show us our need for a Savior, then its design was pointing to the perfection of Christ. This is what Christ is going to do, but it also shows us our sin. Right? If it shows us our sin, then was it ever a system put in place by God to save us? No. It wasn't. 
And so the law becomes, for the unbeliever, it becomes this weight. It becomes the source of judgment. It becomes God's declaration uh, that you are not declared just. Remember, justice, justification is the legal declaration that you are what? Not guilty. Not innocent, but not guilty. Okay? I'm sorry, but if, I'm, if I've committed a crime and I walk out of a courtroom... I am just as happy to be not guilty as I am to be innocent. I'm free as anybody who's innocent. So that's a wonderful thing. But this law is a burden, right? So when God gives us a law for the unbeliever, it's this weight. It's this condemnation. It's this, you know, this thing that comes down on him, convicts, not just uh, convicts is the wrong term because that's a repentant heart. But it does weigh on that person. But for the believer moving forward... It actually becomes something that is a delight, right? What does David say? The law of the Lord is a delight. Uh, Psalm 1, right? Uh, the, the, the man who, blessed is a man who walks not in the transgression, in the way of the transgressors and so forth, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, right? And he meditates on it day and night. So this is, the law becomes something that we do. The precepts become something in God's will. And this is what gives us the basis for being able, if I'm looking at God's word and God says, thou shalt not kill, I can look around and I say, that person is killing. We can take abortion, for example. We, that person is killing unjustly this other creation by God, this other person. Right? And so when I make that declaration, it's not me making the declaration. I'm simply repeating that. I should not be the source of criticism for me saying, um, you shouldn't kill. All right? I should become the person. People should, I should be pointing to Christ, pointing to God and his law, saying, he said thou shalt not kill. You have a God to answer to one day. And this, this is true for anything that God has said thou shalt or thou shalt not do. All right? We become conduits. Of God's law. And, and sharing this law, telling this law, living this law, uh, referring to this law, this is, this is basically evangelism. Because when we're saved, we're saved from what? Death, but God's wrath. We're saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from death. We're saved from God's wrath. God's wrath rests on the unbeliever every day. And every day the unbeliever lives is more wrath that's building up. So this is absolutely essential that we share the law of God with the unbeliever, right? All right. So we have, uh, coming out of this, we have predestination. Now, predestination is still part of God's decree. And predestination has two parts to it. What are the two parts? <laughs> Very good. So two parts are election, right? Uh, election and reprobation. Right? Election and reprobation, all part of predestination. Predestination simply means there's a destination that has been predetermined. Um, a lot of arguments about when, God, when that happens, when God does that, and so forth. And I don't want to get into that. That's a whole, whole uh, big issue. 
Uh, and then calling, and this is what's really neat. The calling then starts to break this barrier uh, in time. It would be next, calling. And there are two callings. What are the two callings? There's a general call, an outward call, right? And then there's the effectual call, the specific or special call, right? Uh, so the outward, I'm just going to put outward and inward, okay? There's different words we could use for that. The outward and inward call. This is important because this is the hearing of the word. One of the things that really, really interested me, how many of you have seen um, Mission Impossible 1? The first one. I need more hands in there. Good movie. But, yeah, thank you. Uh, what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, there's a point in there where the main character, Ethan Hunt, uh, Tom Cruise, is, is trying to figure stuff out, and he's going back to his hotel room. His, his members of his team have been killed off, and he's sitting there, and he's trying to figure out on the computer what this code means. Right? And it's job 314, something like that. And he's rubbing his eyes, getting all tired, and he looks up, and on the shelf behind him is the Bible. And so it clicks. Not job 314, Job. Right? He looks it up, and something about him. So he opens it up, and he's reading it. And I'm thinking to myself, he has eternal life in his life. He has the law of God right there. He's reading it. Right? And if it were just as simple as opening it up and reading it and saying, ah, I believe that, we'd have a lot more people saved, right? If it's just a matter of reading, right? We don't. We don't have a lot more people being saved that way. But we do have, when people are saved, what happens when they open it up and read it. They open it up. And not just are they opening up the Word, the Word is opening Acts chapter 16, we have when Lydia, the seller of purple, uh, and let's go to that real quick, and I apologize for this, we'll just bypass this today. But Acts chapter 16, uh, very important, and I'm, we're, I'm honestly trying to fly through this to get to a couple of other things, so if it seems a little rushed, it is. Acts chapter 16. Um, All right, and it's verse uh, 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. The next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, and a leading city of the district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where, ex uh, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke uh, to the woman gathered there, the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. Now, if we didn't have that little sentence in there, the Lord opened her heart, her heart would not have been opened. We would have had this lady who sold purple, listening, and that would have been it. And we know that was the case. We know that many people heard and listened and went on their merry way. 
Okay, but the Lord opened her heart. And so that's what we, when we talk about the outward call and the inward call, that's the difference. The Lord opening the heart. Okay? So, the next one. If the Lord opens the heart, and we can kind of even circle this, right? Predestination, election. Election is those to eternal life, reprobation are those to eternal damnation. So if God has decreed God's will, I'm just circling the path that you can kind of see how God's chosen people are saved. God decrees their, their election. By election, the calling goes out. That calling is an inward call, which res results in regeneration. Okay? Regeneration. What does that mean? Well, that means the new birth. That means you have a new heart. It's heart surgery for the Spirit. It, it, is, it is a new heart given to you by... There's understanding that happens. The eyes are open. The ears are open. There's this sensitivity to your sin. And John said in John 3... Remember what he said? Uh, it was maybe in John 1. Uh, where he says, I must decrease so that Christ may increase. That is the proof of regeneration. It's that kind of thing where I'm abased. I am, not, I am nothing. God, Christ is everything. Right? And the further in our minds that we can make that gap in our worship, in our lives, the further we can make that gap, the better we understand who we are and who God is. Right? Because I can never be what God is. This, again, is a heresy by the, by the cults. Right? The Mormons say what? Uh, as God is, man once was. Or as, no, sorry. As God is, man may become. That's the second part of it. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. So, God was once a man, and we can become God. Wow. It's messed up, right? Okay. So, the next thing, after, after uh, regeneration, a part, part of generation, of course, what happens for regeneration, what the Holy Spirit does, is faith and confession. Those are the means by which the Holy Spirit opens the heart. So someone who is regenerated, and you've got to think about a real birth here, a real live baby birth here, okay? The baby is alive for nine months before it comes out crying, right? So there's life that precedes faith and confession. Somebody look up, please, and read 1 Corinthians 12.3. So nobody can say that Jesus is Lord except by through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has to impart that ability, has to impart that desire, has to impart that, that will. Okay? And apart from that, no one ever will. So reliance upon the Holy Spirit and the Trinity in the work of salvation is thoroughly 100%. And if you're keeping a tally sheet on the side, God and man, so far man has nothing, right? If this were a contest. Uh, God does it all. 
So he creates, he gives the faith, he imparts the faith, and he makes that a faith that is workable, it's effectual, right? And that faith and confession, no one can confess or say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. So the Father decrees, the Father elects, the Holy Spirit calls, the Holy Spirit does the inward call, the Holy Spirit uh, produces faith and confession. We can see this throughout. And then we have imputation. Now, imputation is where, where and again, remember me, I said this a few weeks ago, uh, th- some of these things happen. <clears throat> There's no way to just isolate one of those in God's timing. You just can't. Okay, they happen, but yet they're distinct. Okay, there's, there's, there are different things that are happening. So it's almost instantaneous with all this. But imputation is next, right? Imputation, which has, guess what? Two things. There are two things that happen with imputation. Imputation is God, it's called the great exchange. God substitutes himself in the place of man. Remember Genesis uh, 17 that we talked about, where Abraham comes to pieces of meat and walking through it, and only God went through it twice. Now, Abraham did not. Well, Abraham, God made the covenant with man. So man has to be a part of the covenant. But only God went through it. So God must become man. Not the mortal kind, right? But God must become man and take upon himself our sin. And so that's an imputation. Our sin is imputed to Christ. But then guess what we get? We get his righteousness. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he becomes man in order to, as a man, live his life perfectly righteous in order to qualify as that, as that perfect sacrifice that is demanded by the law of God. Yeah, he, he fulfills it perfectly. And we can even see, you, a lot of this, would have, not the calling and so forth, but... Christ himself was the chosen, right? I hate the show, but anyway. Uh, so, there's, so there's that as well. And it's also helpful to the experience of us as we move through this divine work of God is quite varied. Yeah. I think Paul has one of the most fascinating examples, right? We look at the way he was knocked off his high horse. He was blinded. He was sent to Straight Street. And he sat for three days, not eating, not sleeping. I mean, he was in absolute. And then the scales came off. And I, I think he touches on that. Because that one of the first pla- the first place as that effectual call takes its root is expressed, I think, in Paul in Romans 7.10, where it says the very commandment that promised life, and there's the wrong side of using the law as the means by which I can be a good person and favorable with God. Right. He says, promised life proved to be death to me, and there it is, right? And through it, killed me. And that's where you begin to understand I have been crucified with Christ. Yeah. I was killed by the law. To show I was unrighteous and worthy of death and found life in Christ, which is that next right. veil that the Spirit of the Lord removes once He's brought us to the end of ourselves through 
through the law. Right. So important. Yeah. That to not get to that place is arguably what John's talking about when they came in another way. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. The door, yeah. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and, and that is... That is imputation. Imputation is that great exchange, that substitution. Uh, there are two things, remember, expiation. First John 2 talks about both of these, First John 2 and 3. And then there's propitiation. Okay, expiation is the cleansing of guilt. God makes us clean by the blood of Christ. We are declared clean. Uh, and that's the next thing. Uh, the blood is on us, it covers us, and we're clean. But is God's wrath removed? Yes. Through propitiation, right? God's wrath is assuaged. It's no longer over a people with whom he was in. Right? It's no longer over them. And so this act is justification with a really weird check. Okay? This is the peak of this ordo salutes. Okay, all of these things are important, and all of the works of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are important. All of these are biblical, and none of them uh, can be overlooked. Okay, you can't drop one out and still be saved. All of these are absolutely essential. But justification is at that moment, that is the legal declaration. That's the paper you're given saying not guilty. That's the hammer coming down in the courtroom saying not guilty. No one, and this is Romans 8. No one can say, no one can bring a charge against God's elect. Right? That's Paul's point. Yeah, question. Yeah, where does uh, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Repentance. Uh, you know, I, I should have put that in there, uh, but it is, it, it's here. Right. It's, it's the... <laughs> Forty-three points. Okay. Uh, so justification is that peak. That's the that's the epitome of what we. So when we share the gospel, we share all of this. But justification is how are you right with God? How are you right with God? For the, the Jew has abandoned their sacrificial system, and if, if you go back to the Old Testament and you ask, why did they sacrifice? It was so that they could be justified. So that God would overlook their sins. They could, they could experience these things, right? They would be cleansed by the blood of these sacrificed animals. And God then didn't kill them because his wrath was assuaged. It was delayed, yeah. It was, uh, so we have justification here in the Old Testament. But what are they doing today for? Nothing. And you can ask, go through all the religions, what do you do for it? Nothing. And so we come up with all of these different systems, different modes, methods, different programs, different steps, different whatever to try to deal with this guilt. Because the very basis for being justified, look, if you weren't guilty, you wouldn't need to be justified. Very simple. The reason you need justification is because you're guilty. Guilty of what? Hating God. Righteousness 
Right. That's, that's the pivot point. Right. Because he says, he says it most informatively in Romans 10, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God, speaking of Israel and all their efforts to keep these laws, to make themselves righteous. He says, ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's right. righteousness. And that's what's so key about it. And it also illuminates us to the fact that the Bible has one meaning. And if you don't get righteousness right, you are not going to find your Right. Uh, absolutely correct. Justification then leads us to, in the next thing, uh, if we're declared just, we have now become reconciled. So reconciliation is the next thing. Okay? Reconciliation. That means to be at peace. Uh, the old Puritans, and the way back when, I don't know when the word was first used, but that was what they called at one minute. Right? Being at one with God. Atonement. Right? We've been atoned for. We, we have, because of this, we now are at peace with God. Listen, when you have the Lord's Supper, and you take that, what you're saying is, I'm at peace with God. Okay, there's, there's more to communion and the Lord's Supper than just remembering his death. The world remembers his death. That's what our whole calendar system is. Right? But what does that mean for us? It means we're at peace with God. Right? We're partaking of his. Uh, it's like the Passover. Right? The blood on the, on the doorposts and... And the, the Holy Spirit passing over, not killing those who did that. I mean, it's a significant thing. We shouldn't take it lightly. It's a wonderful thing. And then because of that, right, we are now adopted. And all of these things, all of these things are, like I said, very, very quick. We're adopted. Why are we adopted? Jesus told the Pharisees, John 6. He said, you are off your father of heaven. This whole argument had been about, no, no, Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father. She said, no, no, if Abraham is your father, you believe in me. Right? But they didn't, so he wasn't. Uh, it, it, it's, it's very clear that we're adopted because none of us are in the family of God until he adopts us. And you've got to go through the paperwork to be adopted. Right? So this is, this is how this works. And so once we're adopted, now we're a child of God. It's a beautiful thing because we were fatherless. And this gets into, this gets into uh, the social justice. Well, a lot of this does, but that really gets into social justice. What does Jesus, uh, what does God say in James 117, 127? True religion and undefiled before God and the Father is. Keep yourself unspotted from the world and to take care of the widows and the orphans. That's social justice. Now, that's been confused with uh, don't, don't confuse social justice, which is biblical. Don't confuse that with social what? Gospel. The social gospel is believing that by taking care of 
by having the soup kitchens and giving people clothes and, and homes and doing all these things, that, that is what saves you. It's not. That's works. Those are good things. At some point, I'm going to fall into opinion. All right. Yeah. I want to hop all over that. Can I get two more points in real quick? Only two. Okay. <laughs> Good. That's all I have. So, so, after this, again, the work of the Spirit begins in us sanctification. We begin to be made into the image of Christ. We begin to be conformed to His image. We begin to be more convicted about how we live and our language changes and our relationships change. And lots of things change. And it's a two steps forward, one step back thing because we still sin. We're not glorified yet. We're not made perfect yet. But we are being sanctified. And that's what I like about what the Reformers look at salvation as. That we were being saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. It was a, it was a past, present, future thing. And if you think about it, nothing in your past can be held over your head by anybody. Because you're forgiven. And nothing that you do right now will ever condemn you to hell if you're a believer. And what's the sign, what's the difference between a believer and unbeliever? A believer will say, I've sinned. They can commit the same sin, right? And the believer will say, I've sinned and confess it. Repentance, daily repentance is what distinguishes, separates the believer from the unbeliever who's like, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, perfect. Right. I mean, Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected That's it. for all time those who are being sanctified. So you see both the eternal view, the divine view, yep. above the line, and now you see the practical view that the this saved sinner now experiences for the rest of their life. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, and that's what, what passage is that? Hebrews 10, 14. So, the last thing is glorification. Of course, at some point, we're all going to die, unless we don't. And then, uh, and then we're going to be taken to heaven. Our bodies are going to be made new, right? A wonderful thing to look forward to, uh, but that's future. And that's the only thing. Sanctification is now, right? Uh, its culmination is glorification. But that, that's it, in a nutshell, okay? Now, James, to your point. And I want you to pose it again for the people while I race the board. It's like a magic show. Yeah, you want to race that? Yeah. So we get a picture. Ah. Okay. okay, I can flip this. Hey, hold on. Just flip it. Maybe I can. 
All right, so here we go. So let me, let me say a couple of things here. Uh, and really what we're talking about is free will and responsibility, right? How is someone determined or declared responsible if God decreed all these things, right? If God has said, um, yeah, Pharaoh, I don't want to save you. How does God hold him responsible? And Paul addresses this very point in Romans 9, right? What does the clay, how can the clay say to the potter, you have made me this way and it's your fault? He can't. Now, here's the thing. If God were to make, this is a little philosophical, but if God were to make you sinless, and he did with Adam, he made Adam sinless. If Adam remained sinless, we would have a created perfect being, right? What that does to God in terms of what his attributes are, what his character is, what his nature is, what his titles are, that would wipe out Redeemer, Savior, Judge. It would eliminate part of who God is. He, is, he didn't become judge when Adam sinned. He didn't become savior when Adam fell. He didn't become redeemer when he realized this isn't going to work. None of that happened. He was all of those things prior to. Okay? So there is a decretive plan for man to sin. Okay? And that decretive plan is fulfilled in Christ. Now, I am not saying God's responsible for sin. Don't misunderstand me, because Scripture is clear on this. Okay? What makes us responsible is because God made man perfect, right? Man was perfect. He did, and Adam was the only one ever to be in a position not to have the influence of sin or the, the behavioral uh, environment of sin. There was nothing that influenced Adam to sin. Right? But he sinned. He chose to sin. And if you had been in Adam's shoes, you would have sinned. And it was a very simple thing, right? Again, it was another freedom, freedom law. Don't touch it. Gotcha. No. The garden's yours. And, and by that representation, right, we call this, we call Adam's sin, we call Adam, he was our federal head. Okay? What that means is he was the representative. Just like Christ later on would become the representative for all of his people to save them, Adam was the representative for all people. He was the best there was to represent us. Because we all know, you put me in the garden with whatever it is I like to eat, nanoseconds, not even going to go by before, right? We all follow our own looks. And Adam did not have that. So he was our federal head. Now, free will, let me just mention three things here real quick that are absolutely essential biblically for free will to be truly free. Okay? One is knowledge. Knowledge. You have to have knowledge of a thing. If I place ten cups in front of you, I said, you can pick any cup of water to drink, but one of them has cyanide. 
I wouldn't forgive because I don't know what's going to kill me. Right? I would have to have perfect knowledge in order for my free choice to still lead to life. Right? And I don't. And we can look at these. The scripture talks about these. The second one is will or uh, choice. What does scripture say about my will? Man is saved, right? Not by will or by running, but by the, the, the calling of God, the will of God, right? the choice of God. Uh, we have uh, lots of places in scripture that talk about man's desire, will, uh, I'm going to say desire, not choice. I'm going to say desire. We save choice for the next one. So my desire is sin. Of my nature, but where did I get my nature from? My federal head, <laughs> right? So, in God's system, when He created Adam, He created Adam perfect. And if Adam had had kids in that state of perfection, the children would have been sinners without sin, right? That was that was what would have happened. But He sinned, and so that sin was passed on to all of His children, all of His project. So. Because it's passed on to us, I don't have... Remember what the two parts of sin are. Uh, the two parts... All of these things have two. That's... Oh, I didn't get that. There's guilt and pollution. Right? Guilt is, you did something wrong. But in our system, the way sin works is you don't have to have done something wrong to be guilty or to be sinful. I don't have to smoke. And this happened just the other day. I walked in a place, uh, some convenience store, and, and uh, somebody was smoking. And guess what I cannot smell like? Smoke. I don't smoke. But I smelled like it. And so I was polluted. And we're all polluted by Adam's sin. You can't escape it. This is, what, again, what Romans tells us, right? By one man, sin and through him, sin upon all men. So if you believe the gospel, you have to believe that at least that happened. Right? So because that happened, we're all guilty. Now, my desires are very clear, scriptural. I prefer darkness. I hate God. Romans 8, I'm in enmity with God. I hate him. Well, enmity means hatred. Right? Uh, look at Peter. Spent three years with him gets to the very end and denies him three times in one night. That wasn't good. Right? And then the last one is ability. Or uh, choice. We'll put choice here for that. Ability and choice. If you take any one of these out, you don't have free will. So it's strike three for man. I don't have the knowledge. What does 1 Corinthians 2 say? Let's go there real quick. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2. This is very important. 1 Corinthians 2. I think it's 14. Yeah, let me start with verse 10. Um, we'll start with verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived, God has prepared these things for those who love him. Now, God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit. Guess how things are revealed? Guess how you find out things about God? Through the Spirit. 
Since the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit within him? Only you know what you're thinking, right? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the Spirit, uh, excuse me, but the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, and yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. Right? So who knows, who knows the mind of Christ? Our knowledge, you can't know nothing unless the Spirit lets you know it. And this was the whole point uh, with Peter. Who do men say that I am? Peter, you're the, you're the Christ. Promise me. Oh, Simon Peter, flesh and blood hasn't told you this. But my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Right? So, knowledge. Strike one for man. Can't know it. Well, what, what, if you really have the freedom to choose, you'd have to know about it. To choose it. Right? That can't happen until he changes your heart. The will. The scripture is very clear on that. We don't have to go to the passages because we all know them, right? But I'm very clearly not desiring of God. I don't, even as a believer, I struggle to obey a command. You, you take the spirit out of my life in that regard, and I, it's, right, anything goes. Ability and choice. Okay, well, what does scripture tell me about my heart? I'm dead. I'm spiritually dead. Right? That word there in Greek is necros. If you know anything about necros, you know it's dead. Right? Necrophagia and all these other things, that ne necrophilia, necro, whatever. It's dead. I have no ability. So, what makes man responsible? I'm going to end with this, uh, on this point. Um, and we can talk about more in depth. Let it be like, but just for, for here right now. And that is this. God has written all of history, and only he knows the future. And he doesn't just know it. He's written it. Okay? If he only knows what could happen, but he doesn't have any control over it, that's not a God I want to serve because my future is uncertain. Okay? I serve a God who has my future, my, the day of my death, the hairs on my head. He has everything in control. There's not one rogue atom in the universe. That's the God I want to serve. That's the God I want to follow. Because now all of creation is under his command and his control. So God has written. So we go to page, you know, uh, I've seen things like this. They have these pages here. All right? We go way up here to this page. And that's my life. That's a, that's a story about me. I can't change it. Nobody can change it. Scripture says that God is the author and the finisher of my faith. He starts it. He ends it. And he's written all of history. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. <coughs> God has determined all things. The end from the beginning. All right? A number of other passages talk about that. So, 
what makes what makes uh, a person's future destruction a real thing is because God's determined it. Now, here's the issue. I've said this before, so everybody should know the answer. If I came at you with a knife, right, and my intention was to cut you, good or bad, bad, right, bad. But if I'm coming at you to cut you and I have a knife and you've been shot with a bullet and I'm a surgeon and the knife is a scalpel, We have limited information about the end of time. We have very limited information. We see bad things like Jesus Christ being put to death. Bad. It saved me. That was bad and it saved me. God has a different thing in mind when we look at bad things. Even the things that he has made, given us precepts and laws against. Right? And that's why Joseph could say, you beat me up, you threw me in a pit, you sold me into slavery, I was spent two years in jail, I was accused of adultery, and now I'm set with command, and God did all of that for you. We, we don't have a tendency, and I, I believe if we as a Christian people spent more time looking at the bad as potential good, and it's always every time good in God's economy, but at least if we change, started changing our our concept of that a little bit, I mean, things would take on a different light. This is why Paul can sit in a prison and say rejoice. And God said rejoice. How could he do that? He's in prison. He did it because he knew this was part of God's plan. And he even said, I'm sitting here for you. Right? So, you know, we, we sit up here in the mornings and we go through this, you know, music stuff, trying to get the speakers right now. Praise God. It's a chance for patience. It's chance, opportunity for praising Him. Your problems are not problems to God. There's no problem to God. Now, if He didn't know the future, it's a big problem, not just with your future, but with God. He only knew things. He doesn't receive information from the outside. So God takes a lump of clay, right? He takes a lump of clay, and Romans says, what if God decided to take one lump of clay and decided to make a vessel for honor and to make a, another love, one for dishonor. What, what if God chooses to do that like he did with Pharaoh? What right does the clay have to say? Why have you made me like this? The clay has no right. It has no power. It has no authority. It has no position from which to say that. And Paul's quoting Isaiah, so it's mentioned twice. Right? And so when we look at people who uh, make this argument, all we can do is we can say, look, I don't know what God's secret plan is. I, he hasn't revealed to us who he's going to save and who he's not going to save. But he has commanded every man everywhere to repent. And that is what the Holy Spirit uses to convict. God said, my word will go out and it will not come back void. It will go out and it will accomplish its purpose. And the more you say about what you know the Word says, not about the secret things, but about the things that have been revealed, God's laws, precepts, and substitutionary atonement, and those kinds of things, the more you talk about those things, the, the more the Spirit has to use.
Okay? And that, that sounds funny because it's not dependent upon you. And I didn't mean to make it sound like that. But that's what we're supposed to do as God's people. I think that's where Paul actually gets to for us in Romans 9, 10, and 11 when we get to Israel. And by every, every sense of the experience, Israel has been lost and forsaken. And yet Paul says, for the purpose of election, his great confidence was in the fact that God said, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And it is all bound up in his purpose of election to show himself sovereign over man's utter inability and unwillingness to seek after him. Right. It's for the purpose of election. It's fascinating. Yeah. Which takes right to John 1, right? 11, which says so beautifully. <coughs> And then Paul says Ephesians 2, but God in verse 4. I mean, it's, it's a, if God didn't inject himself, you know. And, and the last thing for, for me, and then we can close, is, is this. Isaiah tells us. God says in Isaiah, he says, uh, for my glory and not for you did I save you. I didn't save you for you. I didn't save you so you could have your best life now. I didn't save you so that you could have something to brag about. I didn't save you because there was some inherent worth in you. I didn't save you because you were the greatest. Go to Deuteronomy 7, where God chooses the nation of Israel. I didn't save you because you were great in number or the most powerful. Or I saved you because of my love. That's why I saved you. That's what he says. Which is why the Bible reveals David's sin so clearly. Right. It wasn't David's righteousness. Right, right. Okay, so that's it. Any questions, last questions, comments? You're dismissed.